the Son of God. Uh, man, what a joy to do that together this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors, elders here at Peninsula Grace. Excited to dive into God's Word this morning. Uh, while the women are decorating cookies, you can follow me. We'll go out in the woods and decorate a moose. How's that? Guy stuff like I'm always doing. <laughs> I can't say it with a straight face. I'll be reading a book somewhere, let's be honest. All right. Um, and I want this to be a space. You know, we come together as we gather to be a place where we can ask the hard questions honestly. Like we, we all have them, right? And it, it does no good to sweep them under the rug. Like our job is not to come here with a, a smile on our face and pretend like everything is well. When we all know, we all have dark doubts, we all have fears, we have confusions, we have the hard questions of life. And to pretend like everything's good when we have struggles, like God already knows our hearts, right? Like God knows what's on our heart. And so we can, the beautiful thing is, what are we saying at the beginning? We can come as we are. We can come to him honestly and say, God, I, I want to follow you. Like, I want to I know you, but like, I've got some things that I don't quite understand here. I know for me, one of those questions that I wrestle with is, if, if God is sovereign, uh, why do we pray? Like, if, if God is sovereign, uh, meaning, like, God's in control of everything, right? He has a plan. He's got promises. He's smarter than me. He's more powerful than me. So if God has said this is going to happen, like, it's going to happen. So why, on the one hand, would I pray for something if, if he's already promised it? Like, why do I need to pray, like, God, would you use all things for good? Like, would you make all things work together for your good and, 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 our, and, our, and our good? Like, he's like, I'm already doing, isn't he already doing that? Like, whether or not I pray that? On the other hand, if he's not going to do something, is, is a fool's errand to pray for something he's not going to do. Like, I can pray till I'm blue in the face that the Orioles would finally win a World Series in my lifetime, and it does not seem like that is the will of God, right? And, and so, but what, about, but more, what about if we're praying for a loved one to heal? But in the back of our minds, aren't we kind of going, well, but if God's going to heal them, and he thinks that's best, won't he do that? Does my prayer actually do anything, in other words? What's the point of prayer? If, if it's your will will be done, why do we pray? Well, let's ask the hard questions and press in to see what Scripture tells us and what it doesn't tell us. We've been studying the book of Daniel, uh, if you've been with us this summer. And Daniel's found himself a stranger in a strange land. Him and his people are in exile in Babylon because of their rebellion and their sin against God. And throughout the book, Daniel has found the most important thing he can do to help see his people become free, to bring his people back home, is not to go Shawshank. Right? He's not going to give them all out of there by conniving, by, by a backdoor, by outpowering Babylon. He's not going to braveheart this thing. Daniel knows his best tool is to pray. And what we're going to learn in Daniel 9 is what does it look like? How do we pray in exile? And, and why do we pray? Because you and I, we said, like Daniel, find ourselves in a sinful, fallen world. Citizens of heaven living here in this version of earth. And so we want to learn this morning from Daniel chapter 9. How do we pray today? Let's first look at Daniel's prayer. Number one, Daniel's prayer. We'll pick it back up in Daniel 9, uh, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of... Your guess is as good as mine, right? I think, I think Lucy, I was, maybe I was dictating and Lucy like jumped in on Siri and was like, and there you go. Uh, so, uh, uh, Amid by birth, who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom. Important thing is, Darius is in his first year of reign. The Medo-Persia empire is in. Now, if you remember, you were with us, that takes us back to chapter 6 in our story. So Daniel is 80 years old. We called him Yoda with a yarmulke, right? Daniel is toward the end of his life. 
and he's praying uh, this, this prayer. So Daniel, uh, verse 2, uh, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood the, from the books, according to the word of the Lord, to the prophet Jeremiah, that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. So Daniel says, I'm reading the scroll. Right? This is their Bible at the time, scroll of I, uh, Jeremiah. And specifically, this scroll is Jeremiah prophesying to the people of Judah to turn from their sins. And he says, you're not going to. God's going to send you into exile for 70 years. And Jeremiah 25 and 29 specifically highlight this. At the end of 70 years, Babylon will fall. I am going to restore you back to the land. So Daniel goes, okay, Darius just took over the Babylon, the Babylonian Empire. That kind of checks out. And it's been almost the end of, I think it, we're almost a 70 year. Carry the one. I think we're almost there. It's time to pack and get ready to go home. And Daniel, but what, notice what Daniel, what does Daniel do in response to what seems like the coming of this promise? He prays. In, in, starting in verse 3, we're going to see that Daniel starts with worship. So I turned my attention. I know that the promised time is nigh. So what does he do? He prays. So I turned my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. What we see here, the way Daniel starts his prayer, a principle that we can learn for our lives, is that prayer starts with the worship of God as he truly is. It starts with the worship of God as he truly is. So notice first, it starts with worship. Worshiping God is praising him for the God that he is. He says, you are great. You inspire awe. You are a God who keeps his covenant. You're faithful. You are full of grace. Like he's just telling God, declaring, praising to God who uh, his God is. That notice that, he, but it's as he truly is. The wor- true worship is the praise of who God truly is. And, and, and our prayer, our, our coming to God must be aligned with that reality. And guys, we've got to be cautious Because it is easy and subtle to start coming to God, a God of our own design. That we can can fashion a God who just coincidentally happens to line up with all of our ideas and all our will and our design. That's idolatry. When we come to somebody we're calling God, but really it's it's the God of our own design, really, who are we worshiping? We're on the throne, right? He says, no, 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 come to God as he is. Now, how do we know how to come to God as he is? Well, what's, what's Daniel doing? He's reading the book of Jeremiah. And he's hearing God's declaration of who God is and what his promises are. And so he's coming to him accordingly. Worship is also bringing all of me into the throne room of who God is. Notice he says, I love this, I turned my attention to the Lord God. The way he starts this is by turning his eyes, by looking to the God he's praying to. And how often we live in a world that is bombarding us and trying to take our attention away, put it on anything else. And I know for me, one of the most helpful practices, if I'm going to actually turn my attention to God, it's turning my attention away from all the distractions and all the beeps and the buzzes and the vibrations coming from this little rectangular box, right? One of the best things I can do is put this in the drawer, get this away, chuck it in the woods so that I can turn my full attention to my God into a quiet spot, to quiet our hearts and maybe actually a quiet location. Good luck with that, parents. Right? Lock yourself in a closet. Hide from the kids. It's really fun. Um, 
So how do we come to him? Well, we turn our attention. We also turn our emotion. Look at what it says. With fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. This was a way of mourning, a way to symbolize their grieving. Daniel's grieving over the state of his people. They are in sin. They are in exile. Daniel comes as he is. Orienting our hearts to God in prayer is coming to him as he really is, but it's also coming to him as we really are. God doesn't want us to clean up and first and pretend like everything's awesome when we know that it's not. We come to him angry. We come to him sad. We come to him broken. We come to him confused as we are. And that's where he meets us in real intimacy. One of the practices I've found that often when I'm starting my time with the Lord is to just take two minutes of silence. And before I even open my mouth to remember what I'm doing, like I'm entering the throne room of God. I'm about to talk to my father, the creator of the universe. A God who on earth, like when his physical presence is here, people walk into the presence and they fall over dead. I don't want to come flippantly. It was my little laundry list for God, my little, as, as though he's my errand boy. I need to come to my God and remember who it is that I'm actually talking to and then come as I am and say, God, who are you? What are you up to? And how do I align myself with you? So the first thing he does is worship. But then he turns to confession. And the bulk of this prayer in Daniel 9 is Daniel um, confessing the sin of his people Israel. Look at verse 5. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and ordinances, your, your rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, like Jeremiah, who had told them to, to change, right? who spoke in your name to our kings, leaders, ancestors, and all the people of our land. Lord, righteousness belongs to you. You're always right, he says. But this day, public shame belongs to us. We have disobeyed. The men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem, and all Israel. Now, notice here, as Daniel's prayer, one of the things that said, and he, he continues on, and, and says similar things. But one of the things that stood out to me was all the we's and us's. Ten times he says we. Nine times he uses us. We have sinned. Shame belongs to us. And what I see here is Daniel not just coming to God for his personal prayer request, but he's praying on behalf of the people of Israel. And, and what a reminder to us. We live in such an individualistic culture that we're often, I'm often coming to God just thinking about me and my life. And he asks us here, we pray with a, a we. I'm not just praying for me, and I'm not just praying for them. It's us together. And what a beautiful reminder of the body of Christ. We are a body. And so when one member of our body hurts, we all hurt. When one member of our body weeps, we all weep. When one of our members of our body is in sin, it affects all of us. And so we want to come together, pray to God, confess our sin together, seek him as a we. And we're going to have a time of corporate confession and intercession here toward the end of our service this morning to walk in that together. Second key principle I see from Daniel in, in this section is that restoration is only found through repentance. So remember, Daniel's praying for the people of Israel to be restored. And he knows that's only going to come if the people repent. Let's see how we see that in the text. We see, first of all, that God is showing himself faithful. He's being, he was faithful in the first place to send his people into exile, just as he said. And look at Daniel's prayer, verse 11. All Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The promised curse written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. So Daniel says, I know exactly why we're in Babylon. Because you gave us your law, told us live like this, and we failed to live like that. And you actually told us ahead of time in Deuteronomy what would happen if we failed to keep that law. 
And this is a grace of our God to tell us how he would have us live and what the expectations and consequences are if we do not live according to his way. So it's revealed, and he knows why they're in exile. But God is also faithful in his promise to bring them back to the land. Daniel knows that Jeremiah also said, if we repent, he'll bring us home. We go back to the book of Jeremiah that he was reading when he prayed this. Jeremiah 29 says, God says, you will call to me and come to, and, and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. See, Daniel also knows the promise here is I'm going to restore you, but what does he say? If, if you pray to me, if you turn to me with all your heart. And this is exactly what Daniel's doing here. He's activating God's promise by praying, turning his full attention to the one that can restore them. This is obedience by faith. And ultimately, what we see here, but remember, God is not just about rules. Like he's not just like, I want a people who keep all the rules. He's in it for the relationship. He loves us. And the problem is they've rebelled against their God. They've broken relationship. And what they're being invited back into is to restore that relationship. But you notice that they won't do that. These stiff-necked people, as the prophets say. And, and, and he's not even asking, God's not even asking for Israel to be perfect and keep all the rules. He says, if you turn to me and repent, if you just simply say, God, we were wrong, would you restore us? And they won't even do that. I can't relate to that at all. Like, I'm never stubborn. I always turn to God. No, I'm like this little girl right here. She had a bad day. Somebody needs to pray for her. We, we are so doggone proud, guys. Like, we won't, like, how often, you think, man, if God's inviting them in his grace, just come to me. Admit that you're wrong and let me restore you, and they won't even do that. But one of the things that wrecks, at the, at the root of all of our sin is pride. And it's this pride that, that wrecks us. Because we ha- instead of coming to God and saying, God, would you save me? I've got to be right on my own. I've got to be good on my own. And I'm so, I can be so adamant about that. That ruins my relationship with God and the relationship with the people around me. And so they, they will not simply turn to him. Whereas Daniel here evidences, he says, I'm throwing myself fully, wholly on the mercy of God. So he worships God. He confesses the sin of his people. And then, and only then, does he turn to ask God. Look at, he says, verse 15, now, in light of that, now that I've oriented my heart to you, confessed our sin now, and he is going to make some requests. And I see some principles again for us today as we enter the throne room of God together. The first one is to ask persistently. Persistently. Jesus talks about this. This is not a one-off for Daniel. Like Daniel wasn't like, man, things are really bad or we're almost toward the end of the promise and now I'll start praying. What do we learn about him in chapter 6? Daniel has been praying three times every day in front of that window, even when his life was threatened, every single day for almost 70 years. That's perseverance. Here in year 69, he says, you know what? I know the promise of my God and I'm not going to give up. And maybe that's you this morning. Like maybe you have been praying for months or years, or even decades, for a healed relationship that's been severed, for the healing of a physical need, emotional, social, whatever it is. And, and the reminder here is that we continue to come to our God 
claiming his promises. We don't give up even if it's year 69. We ask persistently like Daniel has been. We also ask in light of the character of our God that we've seen in the past. I love this. He says, Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and made your name renowned as it is to this day. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, may your anger and wrath turn away. He says, God, I remember you're the God who rescued us out of Egypt in the first place. You're a rescuing God. When all looks hopeless, this is the God you are. In keeping with those kind of acts, would you rescue your people again here in Babylon? And I see this again in my own heart. I know how short-term of a memory I can have. Yeah, God, you've come through every other time in my life, but this time, eh, don't know. We ask in light of who our God has proven himself to be in the past. And then we also ask in light of God's promises for the future. Notice that Daniel is not asking for anything that God hasn't already promised. He's not just like, hey, God, would you bring us back home? And maybe at the end of 70, no, that God is, Jeremiah 29, this is, he says, for this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will. You want to find promises in the Bible? Look for that word will. This is what God will do. I will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place, referring back to the promised land, to Jerusalem. And here's the verse that we love to rip out of context. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. So Daniel is simply praying along the promises of God. God, you said that after a period of 70 years, you would bring us back. If we turned back to you in prayer and in humble confession of our sin, you, we would find you there and you would bring us home. Would you do the thing that you said you would do? I love what John Piper, he talks about, as we come to the word, he says it like this, we want to ransack the Bible for God's promises. I love the word ransack. I need to use that more in my day-to-day. He says, come to the word and do a treasure hunt, and let's look for all the will, the will statement. What will God do for, what does he promise to us? And then our job is to simply pray along the things that God has said he would do. So let's look at a couple of those for us today. He says, but if we confess our sin to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. So you come in this morning, and the promise here we have in 1 John is no matter what you've done, no matter what state of your heart, that if we come today and confess our sins, he will, he is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us. That is a promise that we can claim by faith this morning. Amen? He goes on to say, I am certain that God, the Bible, not, not John, uh, I'm certain to say that God who began the good work within you will, here's a promise word, will continue his good work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. He says, I will start the good work, uh, finish the good work I started in you. And what was his good work? To make us like Jesus. He says, I promise my, God promises that the, to, I've started this work in you to make you more like Jesus, and I am, God always finishes what he started. So I can wake up this morning and say, God, whatever mess I'm in, from my vantage point, the world looks like chaos, but I can cling, cling to this promise that you're going to use today to make me more like your son, claiming his promise. 
Then Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Who's coming in here this morning weary with burdens? And we come to him as we are, and we lay those burdens down, and his promise is that we will find rest for our soul when we bring him our burdens. That's a promise. What about if you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. Is anybody here lacking wisdom today? A little confused about the next step in the road, like where I'm supposed to go for it. Anybody a little foolish? This is a safe place, right? This is a, we'll put a dunce cap on you. It's all good. So we say, I need God's wisdom. He promises here that he will give it to us. But the Lord is faithful, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. Is anybody here this morning being bombarded by the lies? What are we seeing earlier? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, the promise that we have here is that we will be guarded and strengthened against the evil one. We have a promise. We can pop Satan in the mouth today. He's going to fall down. Amen. And the same God who takes care of me will Supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Everything we need for today, our daily bread, will be supplied by our God. All of these promises, Paul says, are yes and amen in Jesus. And we go ransacking the scripture to find the promises and we claim and ask God to do what he has said he's going to do. Now back to our initial question about the sovereignty of God in prayer. Wouldn't God have already done this anyway? Like, at the end of 70 years, if he said he's going to bring them back, he's got to bring them back, right? Didn't God kind of paint himself into a corner? Like, he can't say, yep, 70 years, I'm bringing you back, and then whoop, kind of go Pinocchio on them. He has to do what he said. So what's the point of Daniel praying in the first place, right? Isn't God just going to carry this out already? This is the mystery that we are invited into. That God is completely sovereign, and yet, in his sovereignty... He has given us, as his humans, responsibility. Here's what we know. In his sovereignty, God has told us to pray. Jesus said this. Ask for anything in my name, and I will, there's a promise, I will do it. But what's it contingent on? Asking in his name. He says, if you ask, I'll do it. And I've heard it said this way, and it's, it's helpful. Without him, we can't. So without God, of course, we know, Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Like, we can do nothing good, nothing pleasing to God on our own. Without him, we can't, completely dependent. And yet, without us, he won't. God's not going to force himself on me. It's only if I claim what he's promised me by faith that it's going to happen. So without him, we can't. Without us, he won't. And I think one reason that he set it up like this is for his own glory. Notice how Jesus finishes the statement. Ask for anything in my name and I will do it. Why? So that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Here's what Jesus knew. If you are a people who depend on God and ask him to do what you cannot do and then he shows up and does it, that's going to bring glory to our God through the Son. And so we get a glimpse into what God is calling us into here. Let's press into that deeper. The last principle we see here is that he asks, Daniel asks, for God's glory. This is such a beautiful ending to his prayer. He says, therefore, God, in light of worshiping you as you are, confessing our sin, and asking you to restore us, he says, our God, hear the prayer and the petitions of your servant. Make your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. Why? For the Lord's sake, for your sake, for your renown, for your glory. He says, listen closely, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that bears your name. The people of Israel represented God. 
And therefore, they were called to accurately shine the light of his holiness through their lives. She says, for we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts. We know that we have not been able to shine the light on our own. Our, our, right, our acts have been far from righteous. That's why we're in Babylon. But based on your abundant compassion, because you are a God that overflows and forever flows with love. Lord, hear. Hear my prayer. Lord, forgive. Forgive us our sins. Lord, listen and act. Would you rescue us out of Babylon and bring us back to the promised land? Why? My God, for your own sake, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. When tiny little Israel, remember how they were born? Tiny little people group, slaves in Egypt. There's no way out on their own, right? They can't do it. Without him, they can't. But what does God do? He parts the sea. He brings plagues. He rescues them in a way that there is no doubt whatsoever who gets the glory for that rescue. And then again, when they're in Babylon, he's going to rescue this tiny band of people in the most powerful empire on earth to date. He's going to rescue them out in a way, if you read the rest of the story, in a way that leaves no doubt as to who gets all the glory. God, in his infinite wisdom, has chosen to work through the prayers of his people. And this teaches us ultimate dependence on him, and it rescues us in a way that leaves no doubt as to who gets the glory. I know this when I was in the throes of my own addiction to pornography and a couple decades in. It was very obvious. I, without him, I couldn't. And without him, I tried and failed over and over and over. And so I pressed into the promise of God, 1 Corinthians 10. It says, God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so you can endure. Here was his promise to me. Son, there's a way out. You can't do it on your own, but I can part the sea. I can free you from the shackles. And if you will claim this promise and follow me through obedient steps of faith, then I can tell you now, years on the other side of victory over pornography, he saved me in a way. My story leaves no doubt in my mind and in the mind of the hearers who gets all the glory for what he's done in my life. As I pray, God acts and he receives the glory. This is a key moment in the redemption of Israel. Daniel's praying for his people to be rescued. God answers. God restores them. He brings them back. He brings them back from Babylon into the land of Jerusalem, into Judah. But what do we see when they get back after 70 years of exile? Did they learn their lesson? Like, are they now, they're sharing their cookies and glorifying God all the time? Like, it's all good? No, of course not. Proverbs, the beautiful proverb, as a dog returns to its vomit, right? They're back, and they're no less sinful and disobedient than before, right? And so what we see here is the ultimate solution in restoration was not just to bring them back to Jerusalem. God's going to answer Daniel's prayer, but it's not just by a relocation project. Look at the way that God ultimately provides God's response here. First of all, we see that God responds to Daniel. Verse 21, while I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, this is referring back to a vision earlier in Daniel, reached me in my extreme weariness. I love this. 
Like as he's on the floor, broken, exhausted, he has been calling out to his God for 69 years. And in the midst of his extreme weariness, God meets him there with this angel. He gave me this explanation. Daniel, I've come now to give you understanding. I want to show you. I want to reveal to you. Remember, apocalyptic. It's an unveiling. God's point of view. At the beginning, this is so cool. At the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out. He says, the moment, the moment you started asking, the moment you turned your attention to God and you worshipped Him, confessed your sin, and started asking God to work, at that same moment, I was sending the angel. And I have come to give it. Why? For you are treasured by God. So consider the message and understand the vision. Now, I don't want to skip over that. Why does God answer Daniel's prayer? He says, for you are treasured by God. We come to God because he loves us, because he treasures us. Listen, we are not trying to go to this grumpy old king on a throne and just asking him to throw us a bone. We're snuggling up into daddy's lap. That we are asking him to do the things that he longs to do for us, the things that he longs to give to us. And what a beautiful truth here, that God doesn't just listen to us out of some divine obligation. He didn't have to listen to Daniel. He didn't have to respond to Daniel. He wants to. He longs to. And Gabriel says, Daniel, God is going to answer your prayer, but as often the case, it's going to be with the two words that we all hate to hear when we ask him. Not yet. Right? God restores. Look at God. He says, there's Gabriel's response. Here's what's going to happen. He says, 70 weeks are decreed. 70 weeks are decreed. Now, the bad news is this is more time. He says, yes, the end of the 70 years to be brought back to Jerusalem is almost here, but there's going to be 70 weeks decreed from this point going forward. More time, Daniel. And in fact, it gets worse because that's actually better translated 77s or 70 periods of seven. Now that could be translated 70 periods of seven days, it could be seven months, it could be seven years. So this could go out a while. Really, if it's seven, 77, this could be as many as 490 years. You thought seven was bad, just wait. Now what do we see here? He says, this is what's going to happen at this point. He says, verse 25, know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, the ruler. So he says, this is how long it's going to take. So the first stage is you're going to go back and you're going to rebuild the temple, rebuild Jerusalem, like I said you were going to. And that's our books of Ezra and Nehemiah. This happens. He says, it will be seven weeks, so about 49 years, he's saying, until that period where you restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And then from there until an anointed one, the ruler, comes, will be a period of 62 sevens, which would mathematically work out till about, we're back in school, right? We can do this, about 434 years. So he says, from here, from the decree to go back to the land, it's going to be about 50 years to build that temple and the walls, and then about another 430 years until this anointed one comes. The anointed, capital A, one, capital O, ruler. Who could that be? Everybody knows the Sunday school answer? Hey, stickers and goldfish for everybody. So... We see this points ahead to Jesus, but don't worry, it gets much more confusing in the next two verses. After those 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off. Most people think that indicates the moment when Jesus dies. Uh, the New Living Translation even kind of says that more specifically. And will have nothing. Looks like it's all over. The people of the coming ruler, so the, the Jewish people, who's the ruler? Jesus, the anointed one. 
his people, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood, and and, and until the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. Um, He will make a a firm covenant with many for one week. So the end is now we're at the 70th seven, right? The end of all things. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. And the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction uh, is poured out on the desolators. So kind of like last week, pretty straightforward, right? You guys got that part? I don't need to, no commentary. You're like, yeah, I'm totally tracking. Um, liars. So we, an important um, principle as we study the Bible, some have argued that this is literal. So that these, whether it's weeks or months or years, that it's kind of one of these and it's got to be this thing. Um, if you want a fun afternoon, <laughs> go home and Google this, okay? And scholars are all over the map, and it's actually really hard to find, like, an exact timeline. Like, when was exactly this decree, and when does it end, and is it, the, is it Cyrus, is it Darius, is it, is it the building uh, is being finished, is the wall, is it, what about with Jesus? Like, it's really hard to make some of these timelines line up from our human point of view, so be cautious to go hyper-literal with some of this. We can also go the other way where we get really figurative. So um, when he says 77, 70 times 7, remember Jesus when he taught Pete to Peter? What did he say? When Peter says, how many times do I have to forgive, Lord? Seven times? Thinking that's pretty magnanimous. And what does Jesus say? No, Peter, 70 times 7. Now we know that Jesus was not being literal. He wasn't saying you forgive someone 490 times, 491st, condemnation, right? Like that's not, that's not what he was saying. He's just saying, what's he telling Peter? Always be willing to forgive. There's no limit to our forgiveness. So to some degree, he's saying at the sufficient time, when there's been enough time, and that the number isn't necessarily a literal, but a way to say when there's been enough time. Now, I think we can go too far down that way and start making all the Bible just simply be figurative and metaphorical, and we can get in some trouble that way as well. See, one of the principles that we often see in the, in the Bible with prophecy is what we call already, not yet. Or another way to say this would be multiple fulfillments. So that oftentimes, anybody ever been hiking and you, you experience a false summit? Like you thought you were at the top, which is good because your Nalgene's empty. But then what do you see? A sick joke and there's like another summit or two to go and you just want to give up in sackcloth and ashes and you're totally tracking with Daniel. Like there's more to come that oftentimes in Scripture we think we see a fulfillment and there would be an all, a fulfillment in the near, but then it turns out there's more fulfillment to come. And we, we often see that, where some of this seems to be fulfilled back in Daniel's time, when Jesus comes, but then it seems like there's more. There's kind of these mountain peaks that come out. We see that some of this is fulfilled when the Jews return home, back into the promised land. That some more of this seems to be fulfilled when Jesus himself, the anointed one, the ruler, comes. And then a little bit more, when his people, it says they talk about the destruction through disobedience, that is pointing toward that 70 A.D. destruction of the Jerusalem temple, and the end of Israel as a nation state until recently. Also, it could be pointing forward in the 70th week toward the end of all things when there's a tribulation period and the Antichrist. Now, again, to parse all that out, we've got to remain humble because scholars have disagreed on this for centuries. But the important, one of the important Bible study principles is to look at the context. What are we talking about? And here, in Daniel chapter 9, we're seeing Daniel pray for his people to be restored back to the promised land that you would restore us like you promised, God. Bring us back home. And we know this is not just getting the sinful people back into the land. Why? Because the problem with that is they bring them with them, right? That the sinners are coming home and they're just as sinful as before. This is a reminder for us 
But it's not just our circumstances that need to change. Like a lot of times we think, God, if you put me in a new scenario, maybe everything, maybe the grass really is greener over there. And if I move to that new location, if I have a new kind of relationship status, if I have a new house, whatever, then finally things will be good. But what's the problem? I bring me with me. Now that doesn't mean that there's, there, there are times where it's a, there's wisdom to move and to change circumstances. But ultimately, what needed to happen in the people of Israel? It was not a change of location. It was a change of heart. What needed the ultimate fulfillment of this was not just coming back to Jerusalem. It was actually coming back to God in relationship. And we see, when we, read, we said when we read apocalyptic, that we want to major on the majors. And what we do know is that every part of the Bible ultimately points to Jesus. And when he promises here, this is what's happening at the end of 70 weeks. Look at what he says. He says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Here's what's coming. And this is what's going to happen at the end of this period of time. He says, two, bring the rebellion to an end. That at long last, the people of Israel will quit rebelling against God. We know when they come back to the land, they keep rebelling against God. To put a stop to sin. Their sin continues, right? To atone for iniquity. That means to cover, to pay for their sin. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up the vision and prophecy that meant to confirm all these things. And to anoint the most holy place. That the dwelling place of God where he meets with man will finally be established forever and ever and ever. And we know this will never happen in their old covenant. They have been sacrificing for years. They have been trying to obey the law for years. They have been failing over and over again. God knew that and wasn't counting on them to keep the law. Because what he also promises in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, he says, Behold, there's coming a day where I'm going to bring a new covenant. And this new covenant will not be like the old one. You broke that over and over and over again. This new covenant, he says, I'm not just bringing you to a new location. I'm going to give you a new heart a heart that wants to obey my law, and I will forgive your sins and remember them no more. Because there's a new day coming, and we know that that was not fulfilled when they came back to Jerusalem. But in that 70th week, he says in the middle of it, he puts a stop to sacrifice and the old offerings. And what do we see at the cross? The curtain is torn in two, and no longer do we have to go to Jerusalem and go through a high priest in the temple slaughtering lambs and and bulls. Now we can boldly but humbly walk into the throne room of God because the perfect lamb has been sacrificed once and for all time. Amen? That we can now walk into his presence that now in Christ... We've been, our iniquity has been covered. An end has been brought to our rebellion. A eternal righteousness has been set up. But we know even like Daniel, we hear today, but not yet completely. Right? There's an already not. Jesus has come once. And he, he finished his work. But he's going to come back at the end of that 70th week. And we're still waiting for that. And his second return is when we're going to see the consummation of this promise. The 70th week will be finalized, and we, heaven and earth, will be made one, and we, right here, in this new version of earth, will dwell with God in Christ, ruling and reigning forever and ever. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, notice in Daniel chapter 9, it's Daniel who prays, we have sinned. We have sinned. Now, have you read Daniel? Do you see any account of Daniel sinning in, in, in the book of Daniel? 
Now, he's the author. I wonder if that's, hmm. Um, no, like Daniel's super Jew, right? Like he keeps, he does, he, you never see him sitting in the book. And so here you have a picture painted of a man who is righteous, praying on behalf of his evil family that God would rescue them from their exile and bring them back home. And what we know is the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short. Daniel is a sinner like the rest of us. But this is a whisper of the true and better Daniel to come, the one who really was a perfect man because he was also fully God and prayed on the behalf of not just his sinful family Israel, but every tongue, tribe, and nation. And not only did he pray on our behalf, but he died on our behalf to bring us back to God. God listened to Daniel. Why? It said because the reason the answer went out, Daniel, was because you are treasured by God. He said, hear us, God, not based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. So let me ask you as we, as we land the plane this morning, how would you honestly, don't give me the Sunday school answer, Jesus, really, honestly, God, you, how would you finish this sentence? God, you listen to my prayer because. Why, why do you believe God listens to you in the first place? Why, why do you believe God treasures you in the first place? And I want us to do a little, if you close your eyes with me, if, if you're able to do so, just to kind of focus our hearts here. And I want to ask, you and God, like when you think about entering into that throne room, as, as we start our hearts with worship, like, and God, we come into your presence this morning, and we know that, that you are great, that you inspire awe, that you are full of grace and faithfulness. And God, we come into your throne room, well, actually completely unable to come into your throne room on our own. And Lord, I know at times in my own life that, that oftentimes I believe the lie that if I'm good enough, you'll accept me. That, that if I've kind of held up my end of the bargain, if I've done enough good things, then you'll finally do your thing and kind of live out a, a karmic relationship with you, Father. And I don't know if some of my brothers and sisters here, those in this room today, have been racked with the same thing. They're trying to come to you based on their own good acts, their own good works, and not wholly on the mercy of God because of your abundant compassion. So I just pray that you would orient our hearts toward you, that we would be able to come, as we do in a few minutes here, just to confess, just prepare our hearts right now to be able to come to you as we fully are. All the brokenness, all the confusion, all the anger, all the anxiety, come to you fully. And Lord, would you do what you've promised to do? God, you have promised in Jesus. He said he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Father, we, we, just, we claim that promise by faith this morning that you would continue to build us up, that my brothers and sisters in this room, the places that we are failing to act like and look like Jesus, would you use the circumstances in our lives to conform us to his image? And as we go out to make disciples of all nations, you promised that Jesus would be with us until the ends of the earth. God, would we go in his name? We claim that promise that as we go, Jesus will be with us, not just rescuing us out of our sins, but using us to proclaim the good news that you long to rescue others from their sins. So God, we just pray in this space right now that we would just pause. We would breathe out. We would remember that we're in your presence. We sing holy, holy, holy. We want, we want a picture with our mind's eye where we are and who the one is that's listening. But God, we can only come into that presence in the blood of Jesus.
So it's in his name that we pray. It's the name that we worship. It's in the name of the anointed ruler who has come and will come back that all God's people said, Amen.